Are you a musician interested in improving your performance? Welcome to Notes on Jazz. I'm your host, Keith Davis. If you want to learn more about jazz improvisation, harmony, and composition, or just want to improve your piano skills, this is the place for you. We'll be hosting interviews with fellow musicians, offering tips and techniques on study and practice, and lots of other cool stuff. Whatever instrument you play, or if you're a vocalist, you will find something helpful and interesting here. So come hang out with us at Notes on Jazz. Hi, I'm very pleased to have uh, Tim Armacost as my guest today. Um, Tim is a wonderful saxophonist, composer, just all around wonderful musician. And I was pleased to hear him play. He brought his quintet down to uh, Furman University where I teach a couple of weeks ago. And uh, what a great band and what a great experience to have such a, like a world-class cast of musicians come visit us, you know, in our little town, Greenville. And uh, so, hi, Tim, how are you doing today? I am really, really well. Thank you for that Good. kind introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a real pleasure hearing you guys and getting to meet you and the master class thing, just getting to hang out a little bit. And so it was a real, real pleasure and a real inspiration yeah. for me too. Thank you for us too. It was, uh, that was pretty well exactly the midpoint on our tour. We were out for two weeks yeah. uh, at the end, end of September and, and the band was, had hit its stride and everybody was feeling good. And, yeah. yeah it, was, it was a great experience. We had a beautiful yeah. time. It just sounded great, man. I mean, I, I had, I was familiar with well, I'd heard. Actually, we had Rudy at Furman a few years ago with um, Dave Pietro Quintet. So ah, I've gotten Dave. to hear, yeah. yeah, Rudy's great. And, um, and I had met Jim once briefly. I heard him play in New York briefly one time uh, down in the village when I was in New York. And uh, uh -huh. this was a, he's just a, he's great. He's a wonderful player too. I mean, all those guys, uh -huh. Kenny, I mean, uh, Joe, of course I'm familiar with Joe. And Sorry about so, that. no, that's okay. But uh, anyway, I'm pleased to have you here. So there's, I mean, there's a lot, I could, a lot of directions we could go here. I like to encourage people to kind of tell their own story here, you know? So, but I'll ask, ask you a few questions and, uh, and we'll just see where we go. All right. Okay. So, Sounds good. You, if you just give me a push, I'll start talking. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a push and <laughs> I'm going to step back and let you, let you take, you know, I'll, I'll just steer the canoe sort of, you know, but uh, I'd like to hear about your background as a musician first. You can give us some, how did you get into music and why jazz and why the saxophone and how'd you get started? Uh-huh. I think like many people, I'm from a musical family uh like many people who wind up playing jazz that is uh my mother studied at juilliard after she oh, finished her she's a piano player she studied at juilliard after finishing her undergrad and discovered uh, we don't have to get too far into the weeds about my mom but <laughs> but she discovered that she her hands were a little bit too small to to manage the the tenths you know that are needed in the left hand for sure. for some of that really heavy classical repertoire and so she she uh, continued down the path of becoming a music teacher. So mm -hmm. I had I had piano students studying with my mom in the house from the time you know as early wow. as I can remember. That's great. It man. was just a constant presence in the house. Mm -hmm. And so she's a classical musician, and my dad is not a a a, a, a player. He can play a little bit of piano. We like to joke about how he's the best maraca player in the band in the in the family, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he's not a professional musician, but but or even a player. But he he's the one who brought everybody in the family's ears to jazz. He was a big fan of uh, Phil Woods and Oscar Peterson and Buddy Rich and and uh, Ray Charles. So had a, a quite a wide variety of things were playing in the house. Actually, there's another kind of funny thing about my family, which is I have two brothers, one older, one younger, and and. I was my older brother played trumpet. He sort of lead, led us into playing music. My my two brothers and I, uh, or my myself and my younger brother, that is. And so he would play trumpet. He would be practicing in one room. My little brother would be practicing the alto in another room. I'd be practicing clarinet in the third room. My dad would have jazz on the stereo in a fourth room, and my mom would be teaching piano in the fifth. It was utter chaos. That's perfect. And man. somehow my dad could could concentrate through all of that. I don't know how he managed it, but <laughs> but that is kind of the environment I grew up in. And and my folks took me. I grew up. I did a lot of growing up outside of Washington D.C. in the in the yeah. Maryland suburbs. And okay. and there's that 
famous venue called Wolf Trap out there where they have the oh, yeah, sure. summer indoor outdoor concerts. I saw a whole lot of people there, but the one that really had the biggest impact on me when I was little was was going to see Benny Goodman when I was eight. Oh wow, yeah, wow. And I heard him playing the clarinet, and I was like, oh, okay, I want yeah. to do that. Yeah. And it wasn't a it wasn't a realization that I wanted to be a professional musician by any stretch. But I I started playing clarinet six months later, and and that got me that got me rolling on the path. That's cool. So you had lessons, uh, I'm assuming, as a kid, and the whole yeah. Band, interestingly, thing. interestingly, my dad left. My my dad got his second posting. He's a diplomat. He got a second posting in Japan as I was turning nine and ten, or ten and eleven. I can't remember which. Uh, in any case, we went over there. I, I did fourth and fifth grade. So fourth grade is usually when you know kids are started with with lessons at school. Right. So we moved to Japan like a few months after I saw Benny Goodman and, and that fall I started on clarinet and Japan became something that was very much a part of my growing up and my education and, and the whole thing. So it's not, uh, it's not, as I look back, it's not at all surprising that I started playing clarinet in Japan. And then a little bit while, a little while later during those two years, I went to a I went to the American school in Japan, uh, a school in Tokyo that sort of serves the, the expat community, and the, it was a kindergarten through twelfth grade school, and uh, the high school had a big band, and I can remember being out at at recess playing soccer, you know, in fifth grade I think it was, and hearing the sounds coming from the cafeteria of the high school. And I just, I just dropped what I was doing in the middle of a game and, and you know, a yeah, pickup game. It yeah, wasn't yeah. an official, official game, but a recess game. You know, I just dropped everything and, and ran to the, to that cafeteria and sat down in front of the saxophone section and just, I didn't budge. I, the bell rang for me to go back to class. That was, that was my first time skipping class <laughs> as a, as a fifth grader. <laughs> it was all downhill from there. And, uh, and I just couldn't take my eyes. I can still remember to this day the way those saxophone players looked sitting in a row of five, you know, delivering all that incredible music. They were playing some Sammy Nessico arrangements and Thad Jones, and all kinds of great stuff. And, yeah. and I, I can't say that I knew I was going to do that in that moment, but I can certainly say that I was drawn like a moth to a flame. Yeah. You know, looking back, it seems clear that that, that was a big moment, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, and then my brother, my older brother, Scott, started getting serious, started to learn how to improvise, very natural ear player. He, he never really got educated. Uh, you know, he didn't go to Berkeley or something like that. He didn't get that kind of a musical education, but he, he's been performing since we were kids. And my little brother got an alto a little after that and started outblowing me on clarinet. So that prompted the move to tenor. <laughs> classic sibling rivalry yeah right and uh and then once i started out blowing him on tenor he switched from alto to tenor so now we both play tenor oh, cool. <laughs> and he still sounds great he's 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 sort of modeled himself after sunny stitt he, he can play the crap out of some out yeah. of some bebop nice uh so yeah that kind of took me through the high school years and then and then i went to went to uh college out in california and met Charlie Shumick and Bobby Bradford. Those were my two main teachers. Bobby Bobby was friends with Ornette Coleman. He oh. actually, they grew up together and, and Ornette actually called Bobby Bradford to play that famous gig at the five spot. Yeah. Uh, and Bobby was on the GI Bill at the time and his professors wouldn't let him, uh, wouldn't let him out of class to go do this gig. And he had a wife and a kid, so he, he chose to stay and finish his degree. And Don Cherry got the call and the rest is, is history on that one. But for me, that was lucky because he wound yeah. up in Southern California from Texas. And, and, and I got to, I didn't, my ears were not quite ready to deal with what he was doing. He was a free player, but a super deep melodic inventor. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was around him for three years while I was at college. Uh, I did my junior year in Japan. Uh, so three out of four, I was around Bobby and, and got to just experience, he, he he would play with us. He didn't just sort of run the jazz ensemble. He would actually include himself in whatever we were doing. So, yeah, cool. so we got to actually, you know, blend horns with him, listen to him improvise on rhythm changes and, and uh, anything else that was happening. And, and uh, 
So I had this really interesting education while I was in college, being around Bobby, who was who was who was just an authentic, incredibly articulate, free jazz player. He's still around, actually. He's he's in his 90s now, and uh, or he might be 89 or 90. Uh, and then Charlie Shoemaker on the other side was my other teacher in, in college, and he he he's a vibes player. Had been out with George Shearing in the late 60s, and and he was all about the language of bebop. He he. He had 500 or 1,000 transcriptions and, and ha- had a very clear and uh, methodical, doesn't sound like the right word to say, but but he had a really clear method for mm-hmm. teaching improvisation. Mm-hmm. And so I had this very kind of intellectual, all about how to fit the chords and scales together approach from one teacher and this ignore the chords and play entirely free mm-hmm. <laughs> approach from another teacher. And it kind of became my path to seek a way between those two things yeah i'm i'm very interested in being able to play properly on giant steps i'm also very interested in playing free Mm -hmm. and finding a way that incorporates the whole spectrum uh has been has been a a a nice path to be walking on for the last 40 years for me yeah i hear that in your playing i really do and uh, uh-huh. that's a, that's a comment that I wanted to make about your playing is I hear I hear that um, the adventuresome approach to playing free I hear it you know at the same time it's melodic and uh, lyrical you know and that's um I mean I that's what I strive for myself actually you know and uh-huh. I, I hear yeah. that that's very comes across to me very clearly in your playing so I really appreciate that um, I really resonated with that you know I'm delighted to hear that you that you heard it that way yeah beautiful. Uh, so. I mean, you're obviously a masterful, masterful saxophone player, but the what came through for me was that aspect of it, the lyricism, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I and that especially in the last 20 years, um, I, I have, let me think about this. So what I was going to say was that the 20, the, these last 20 years have been, to my mind, an, an era of really uh, intense, searching and innovation in the area of rhythm and mm-hmm. i'm on board i love playing in odd meter and i love playing mm-hmm. in mixed meter and mm-hmm. metric modulation i love it all i'm, mm-hmm. I'm right into it mm-hmm. and at the same time i think it it one of the things that was a consequence of that searching is is guys and women uh composers who were writing the new music to improvise over were focused on the rhythm and so they created structures where they could uh, 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 innovate in that area mm-hmm. and I kind of felt myself like like melody and harmony took a bit of a backseat mm-hmm. to the rhythmic innovation mm-hmm. got no problem with that because I understand you know I get right. it you, right, right. You, you maybe want to simplify some things so you can concentrate on this other thing that you're trying mm-hmm. to trying to explore but I started to feel maybe in the last six eight years ten that maybe it was time for me in any case in, in my life to to try to find a way to, to learn more about what melody is and learn more about how to play melodies and how to improvise with melody and have that be something I add into the rhythmic stuff that everybody's exploring rather than leaving it behind. Mm-hmm. So so that's been a preoccupation of mine. And I, I, I do a lot of uh, melodic stuff with my students. That's the first thing we do in every lesson. We spend mm-hmm. 15 minutes just exploring freely. And mm-hmm. the point is to play melody. And the and the idea is to play melodies that you've never played before. That's the first thing we do in the 15, first 15 minutes of, a, of an hour lesson or 20. Mm-hmm. We just play melodies, search for melodies that we've never played before. And I think of that as a way to practice doing the thing that I'm trying to do on the bandstand, you know, it's keep it, keep it adventurous, keep it open, keep it uh yeah adventurous and open and, and take risks and see what happens and see if you can find your way out if you hit a, if you hit a wall see if you can find a way to bounce off it and <laughs> find something that makes sense you know mm-hmm. so i practiced it I, I practiced that stuff yeah that's great that, that's uh in, insightful and inspiring for me i'm a teacher too obviously and uh, mm-hmm. i'm mm-hmm. gonna adopt that I, I we do some of this but i'm gonna I'm going to incorporate that. I'm going to steal that from you or borrow it or <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. whatever you want to say. I think that's you, a good... 
Yeah, I'll do a quick plug. You and your listeners can learn more about that in my book. I was going to I was going to get to that talking to you about your book because uh, I, I think your your book sounds like much more than a saxophone book, and uh, I can't wait to get my Actually, own copy the, of it and look at it. You know, that's you know. the main criticism I've I've received about the book is that it it was maybe a mistake to call it the jazz saxophone book. Well, the the yeah. the idea behind that was a as a kind of a. a a partner book to Mark Levine's book, the jazz piano book, uh, Chuck right. share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I created this book, the jazz saxophone book together. And, and that was, that was certainly my, my goal was certainly to have it be a book that's as, as useful as Mark Levine's book has been to me. I'm mm-hmm. not a piano player, but his piano book was very useful to me. And, sure. and the way he put it together, referring to the tradition and, Mm-hmm. And with examples that illustrated what he was talking about from Blue Note in the 60s, for example, you know, just mm-hmm. all these very clear references to the tradition, which mm-hmm. made the book uh, feel alive rather than uh, like an archive where historical things live, you know, not that. Mm-hmm. It's a reference source to the music that's active and alive. I thought he did an amazing job with that. Mm-hmm. So I set out with the intention of trying to create a book that was aimed at saxophone players, but would be useful to everyone, you know, and, and maybe would give, I tried to share some of my knowledge of what I know about playing with a rhythm section to saxophonists. And then I, my hope was that the, the, uh, the rhythm section players who get, whose, whose hands this book falls into can Mm -hmm. also learn something about how it, how saxophone players think. And what they're looking for from the rhythm section, and, and mm-hmm. try to I tried to to generate some conversation in, in mm-hmm. various chapters of the book. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. I'm going to get a copy because I'm. I've said that said that to you that day at that master class. I was looking forward to it. I'm going to get a copy for uh-huh. myself because I'm very interested. Yeah, and yeah, nice. In fact, I noticed that. Uh, uh, I was looking through your discography, and I noticed that uh, David Berkman has owned some of your recordings in with the New York. New York Standards Quartet. Standards Quartet, and yeah. He's one of the first people I interviewed for this podcast. Oh, is that so? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, his, his book. Always are great. proud to be in a group with David Berkman. Man, he's a, <laughs> he's an amazing musician and he's a, obviously a great teacher. I had a long two-hour conversation with him like this. A- apart from uh-huh. the podcast, we had a long two-hour conversation about all these things too. And I use yeah. one of his books as a harmony book with my students. You know, the so harmony. David and I teach together at... Uh, at Queens College. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Okay. There, yeah. And I have I have taken I've audited his harmony class twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah <good> <laughs> I you. just go in every now and yeah. again and I yeah. and I watch the you know, I watch along for the first three quarters of the class. I don't I don't do the final project or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I I just go in and see what things I could use to have a second look at, you know, most yeah. of what he's talking about. I've read this book, you know, I, I understand sure. it. I've internalized most of it, Sure. but it never hurts to go and get yourself reminded of, sure. of somebody else's perspective on it. You yeah, know, absolutely. And I've, yeah, I've gotten a lot of benefit from that. Yeah, another another yeah. little David Berkman story is, is uh, a little while ago, we were out, we were on tour in Japan together and we had a day off in Kobe and he said, I might have had two days off, and he said, "And he said, man, we got a couple of days off. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. You want? Why don't we give each other a lesson?" I said, hey. oh, "That's a really interesting idea." So he gave me a piano lesson, which, in my case, I, I knew I could find the chords on the piano, but I had never really worked on on being able to play piano in time. Mm-hmm. And he got me started just doing one and seven in my left hand and three in my right hand. Mm-hmm. very simple voicings and moving them around mm-hmm. and it and it really made a big difference to start being able to do that mm-hmm. so that's the lesson he gave me and and i gave him the lesson about playing a fifth at the bottom of the piano and letting it sustain mm-hmm. and then playing melodies doing the thing i was just talking to you about mm-hmm. where we where we just uh free associate melodically and see if we can find something that's that's that we've never played before and he uh he, he, I thought I got the better end of that deal, but he says he, he yeah. says he feels like he got a good, good lesson out of it. Yeah, too, I so. think I want to get in on this deal with you too. We're going to talk about that after this, after this mm-hmm. interview today, because I, I definitely mm-hmm. want to have some ongoing conversations with you. Because, uh, like I said, Love your it. music, your music resonated with me quite a bit, and uh, 
And uh, so I look forward to some ongoing conversations. So, Likewise. Yeah. So um, anything else you want to say about the book, the writing of it or the conception of it or any feedback you've gotten about it from people? The, the I, I think I gave you the, a pretty good synopsis of, of what it's about and what it's for. It's meant mm -hmm. to be in addition to, so yeah, one thing that's worth saying about it is that I, I went to Chuck share at the, at the gen conference in, in new Orleans must be five years ago now, four or five. And, uh, and I went with the idea of pitching a, a book about melody because I've been thinking about melody for six or eight years. And I started to feel like I had some things to contribute. And so I, I went to him and, and we started talking and, and he was like, yeah, you should, I think you should write a book for me. And I, and I said, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I'm standing in front of you. I'd, I'd like to do that. And I have this idea to, to write a book about melody because I feel like that's a subject that could use some explanation. And he said, that's a nice idea. Why don't you consider doing that as a, as a chapter in a larger book? And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about a project on that scale. Let me sleep on it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I left. We had met a few times, so we we knew each other to to, to talk, you know. And uh, uh, so I went to bed that night, and I woke up the next morning, and I had the idea. I had the structure for the book. It came to me in my sleep, wow. and that was to to follow the structure of a song. So if you're a saxophone mm -hmm. player, you need to know how to count the tune off. You need you need to know how to get it going. Mm -hmm. So I talk about how to actually count the tune off. You know. Find the time in your body before you ever articulate to the band what the time is. So you're not, so you don't go one, two, one, two, three, four. You know, that's like error number one. You get the right. tune off to a bad start. You're recovering for half the tune, right? Exactly. So from that to what I prefer to do, which is to play some music or ask somebody, somebody in the band to play some music to get it started. So we're, so rather than counting it off, we're we're playing it in. Mm -hmm. So I talk about that, and and then you know how to play the melody how to play the solo, how to play your own solo. And of, of course that then gets into harmony and, and, and all of that very involved stuff that, that you have to know. Uh, trading force, how to play the melody out, how to, how to, uh, how to initiate going into a three, six, two, five turnaround after the, after you've played the head out, you know, how to play the ending. Mm -hmm. That became the structure of the book. And it, it, it is meant to be very practical. Like here's here's a here's something from Sonny Stitt. Listen to this, see how he ends the song. And then I explain what he does. And then go try that. You know, go to a piano player's house and see if you can make that happen. And those sort of practical on the bandstand skills were things that I thought could use could use some explanation. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having the theory and, and the stuff you would expect from a jazz saxophone book. It's also meant to be a really practical guide. And like I was saying earlier, if you're a piano player, it doesn't hurt to see, you probably, you may or may not already know how to initiate a three, six, two, five turnaround at the end of a song, right? right. But yeah. to see it explained and to see how saxophone players do it might be useful. And it also might help you to teach it to somebody. Absolutely. So that all those things, all those things came into play. And so I went to Chuck the next day, I said, hey, Hey Chuck, I thought of this idea of following the structure of a song and 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 making the chapters follow that order. And he was like, "Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you why don't you outline that and send me the outline and and we'll discuss it." So he was very much involved in uh, in in pushing me towards this structure. And when I found something I thought I could work with, he was also Chuck was also incredibly helpful. Uh, when I got lost in the weeds, you know, when when I was too far down something about the harmonic minor scale, you know, right, right, he was right. like, maybe you need to take this out and put it into a chapter later on about advanced harmony, for example. That was one of the things that happened, and and that helped me to keep that that flow of playing all the way through a song, and I did do that. I took out some of the more sort of advanced harmonic ideas and and put them later after I'd finished the the main body of the mm -hmm. of the book. So. So that it was, it was a great, great experience doing that with Chuck, having him, him be the, the sort of big picture eyes and ears on what I was writing, mm -hmm. yeah. and that all happened during the lockdown. So that 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 was a, a silver lining of that very difficult time, you know, right. where 
I'm sure like you, I had, I had two years of live work just disappear. You know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was lucky to have some teaching so we, we could kind of stay in our house, you know, it wasn't a total disaster, but anyway, I had all this free time. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, time to sit down and, and start thinking about be, uh, behaving like an author. Yeah. I'd always kind of right. thought that was, you know, whenever you hear stories about novelists who sit down at their desk every day, every morning and write for two hours or three hours, yeah. you know, I always thought, wow, that takes a lot of discipline. I wonder yeah. if I'd be able to do that. Right. And I, I, I could, it was, yeah. it was, I mean, of course I had the freedom to because of the, that horrible global pandemic, right. you know, sure, sure. it always, it always feels a little bit weird talking about it like that because, because people were dying, you know, but, sure. but, and I lost some friends, you know, that it was tragic, but. And in the middle of that, I was able to sit down at my desk and there were no other demands on my time except for some teaching. Mm -hmm. So it gave me an opening to to sit down and, and do that steadily day after day. And it took me pretty much the whole two years well, yeah. to, to get everything that I've ever learned down on a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I got a bass player friend in Atlanta. He's, you know, somebody I've known since I was, I started playing with it when I was 19 or 20, you know, and uh -huh. he always says, I can tell you everything I know in five minutes. Ah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, during the, during that time, I made a video course of be, uh, beginning harmony for piano oh, did you? Uh -huh. video course, you know? So I learned, oh. I, I used that time for, to do that. Some of that kind of stuff myself, you know? All so, right. Is it, yeah. uh, is it, is it uh, sort of up somewhere where I could access? Uh, yeah, it? I can. I'll, I, I'm working on. I'm, I'm sort of redoing some of it. I'm adding some material uh -huh. to it to make it more. Uh -huh. I think more useful, more helpful. But I'll share a little bit of it with you if you're. If you're it's very basic. It's just like one, four, five triad harmony for piano players. You know. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, a good I, start, that's, you know? yeah. that's a good place for me to go. Just to, yeah, as okay. I was saying, you know, just to take yeah. my take my in-time piano playing to the next yeah. stage. That would be, yeah, I'll share some of it with you if you're interested. Maybe, actually, maybe you could give me yeah, some feedback. Tell me what you think, you know. But, uh, anyway, I'm definitely to looking that. forward to the book. I'm definitely going to get a copy of that. Nice. Yeah. And I just downloaded your the, the CD. and the, Well, the band, I went to Bandcamp and got your newest recording. Uh, I tried to ah. do it, but I, every time I thought to do it, I was in the car and I was trying to do it on my phone. It wouldn't mm. let me do it on my phone. So, Yeah. So, uh, what a world, huh? Yeah, what a, I know. What a world. Yeah, what a life. But, uh, so anyway, let's uh, tell me some more stuff. Tell me some good stuff. Who are your saxophone influences? Tell me a little bit about that, maybe. Like, uh -huh. who inspired you? So Benny Goodman got me started on clarinet, and and then and then I was growing up outside of Washington D.C. in the Maryland suburbs, as I said, oh, and, so you got and to hear Blues Alley. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Blues Alley. There were a number of clubs. There was Blues Alley was the club where the jazz stars would come through, and and that was kind of before the Blue Note era. The, mm -hmm. I mean, the club, the Blue Note, right? Where it was, where it was really about stardom and celebrity rather than the keepers of the flame and or the the current jazz stars, you know. So anyway, I, uh, Blues Alley at that time just had an incredible roster of people, and they would come, they would come down to New York and play Tuesday to Sunday. I mean, that was, that era yeah. was, yeah. It, it was weird because it was the end of the 70s, which is also considered sort of a not golden age for straight ahead jazz. But anyway, there were, there were people like, like Freddie Hubbard and Cedar Walton and, mm -hmm. and Art Blakey and Elvin Jones and yeah. Stan Getz, you know, all these guys were playing. They didn't, they, they maybe took some forays into the fusion thing, but they, they basically kept the, the flame burning. And I got to right. see a whole bunch of those guys that blew out. Cool. So, uh, Dexter Dexter Gordon and Stan Getz were the first two uh, uh, saxophonist leading quartets that I got to hear live, and they both. I didn't know much of what was happening yet. I didn't have much knowledge, but I could see that I could see that what they were doing was incredibly attractive, mm -hmm. and was was inspired by them. Yeah. And then after graduating from high school, as I started studying with Charlie, he. His, my first lesson with him was really interesting. He said, I talk about this in the book too. He, he said, uh, okay, Tim, so, you know, I just walked in the door basically. And he said, okay, Tim, so what do you play over in E minor seven flat five chord? And I'm like, no idea, Charlie. That's where I need to start. And he, and he was really cool. He wasn't judgmental. He was just like, okay, yeah. I, I see what we need to do. And he started me on the major scales, you know, got me yeah, learning right. the, the modes of the major scales. Right. And, 
And he didn't call them modes either. He didn't ask me to learn seven modes and have them have the different. Right. You know, all of the, if you're talking about, about Dorian and Mixolydian and I am, that's all there. It's all the C major scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right, it's just exactly the C right. major scale starting on D if, you, if mm-hmm. it's the Dorian mode, you know? Sure. And, and so I was kind of lucky that he didn't ask me right from the beginning to learn the C major scale as if it was seven different scales. Mm-hmm. He just said, this is the C major scale. And here's how you use it on a D minor chord. And here's how you use it on G minor, G, uh, G7 chord. And so I got this really, really concise explanation of harmony from Charlie. And then the second thing, so that went on for, you know, half a year as we worked through the scale. But the other thing he did in that first lesson was he said, uh, what do you want? Why are you here? <laughs> He's such a yeah. good teacher. Right. And uh, I said, well, what I, what I want is to learn how to play long flowing lines through the changes. Right. And I had, I've been improvising, you know, I was the first tenor player in my, in my high school big band. So I've been getting some solos, but I didn't really know what to do beyond playing by ear. Mm-hmm. And I had explored the, the structures of the chords a little bit. I could probably tell you at that point that C7 was C, E, G, and B flat. But beyond that, I didn't really know how, what to do. I could play some little melodies and I could maybe land on one of those chords, chord notes, you know. But I didn't really understand that there was a scale that went with that or that it was coming from a scale. And so he got me started with that. And, and he, so I, I said, I'd like to learn how to play long flowing lines. And his answer to that was, oh, okay, you mean like this? And he, he, we were using LPs at that time. So he put the needle down on an LP and it was Sonny Rollins playing Mambo Bounce from the record he did with the, the Modern Jazz Quartet. And, and I was like, yes. That's exactly that's exactly what I'm trying to hear in my head. I don't know how to get to that. And I I had probably heard of Sonny Rollins, but I hadn't seen him live mm-hmm. and didn't really know much about him yet. I was 16, 17, mm-hmm. maybe 17, 18, maybe 18. And uh, <clears throat> so so that was it. Sonny Rollins became the guy for me. Mm-hmm. And studying with Charlie, I also got exposed to Hank Mobley, I did some solos of, of Dexter Gordon, uh, Harold Land was a big influence at that time. And then and then the other thing that was really cool about studying with Charlie is that he was a vibes player. All he cared about when he did transcriptions was good vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So he had, he had me working on Charlie Parker transcriptions, Freddie Hubbard, Tom Harrell, Bill Woods, uh, uh, Bud Powell, you know, it didn't matter what the instrument was, just mm-hmm. that he played a solo that was great from start to finish. So he had this really cool thing where he would he would have us learn a he would have us learn a solo once a week, and and then what he would do is is you go into the lesson and and he would comp on piano as a vibes player, but he would comp on piano, and and you would play the head and then the solo that you learned, and then he would continue to comp. So that you could feel the difference between what it felt like to play a perfect solo as imagined by Hank Mobley, followed by your sort of lame <laughs> attempt at improvisation. <laughs> and every week you could feel the difference. And, and with luck, as your vocabulary started to increase, you, you started to get that feeling like, oh, it doesn't feel so bad, that difference now. You know, I'm starting to be able to do this a little bit. It was a very, very effective way of teaching. And it was all mm-hmm. about the music. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. about... It wasn't about the, the uh, it was about learning to put into practice the language that you were learning and understanding what the grammatical underpinnings were. So it was very, it was a very effective way of teaching. And, did you transcribe and, all those solos yourself or did he have some, some that he provided you with? Or Yeah, he had written curious. them all down and he uh-huh. would give us a copy. And, uh-huh. and what I do when I share this with my students now is I, I tell them to learn it by ear and just mm-hmm. use the transcription to confirm what you heard, gotcha. but not to learn it by reading. Because I, I think it makes more sense to, to engage your, your ears sure. when you're learning something rather than your eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't think it's negative, as I hear myself say that, I don't think it's a negative thing to if you're listening while you read the solo, mm-hmm. that you're doing both of those things together. That That's not necessarily a problem as long as the oral element is there 
Mm-hmm. If you're if you're just reading it off the page without hearing it first, I don't right. think that's worth anything. Right, right. <laughs> maybe right, right. maybe it makes you a better sight sight reader, but right. not much not much beyond that. But you don't hear the inflections and the phrasing. You don't really hear the if you don't hear the music being right. played. You don't hear the subtleties of it. Right? And most importantly, the feeling of the time. The feel, yeah, the feeling of the time, exactly. Like the swing yeah. feel or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was all. That was a great. Thing. And the other thing that Charlie would do, the way he would be an old school kind of teacher was, if you weren't making it, he'd just stop. So if you know you played Hank Mobley solo on the best things in life for free, and then you took a, and then I took a chorus. You know, if I wasn't really happening, he'd he'd sort of he'd play a retard. You know, he'd take us, he'd take you out. <laughs> if you weren't happening, he'd take you out. And then if you were happening, if you were happening, he'd give you three or four choruses, and then he'd modulate and take you into another key. And oh. see if you could see if you could figure out how to play that tune in another key right now. Mm-hmm. And boy, he was he was a pretty he's still around. He's a I'm actually actually after we finish today, I've got a one of my first emails to send today is a confirmation that I can I can yes do a gig that we talked about doing together on the 14th of January down in, in where he lives in, in Cambria, California. Beautiful. So, um, I've been doing that now with him. When I was studying with him, you know, I was in college, and the guys who were eight, five, six, eight years older than me were yeah. playing gigs with him in, in Los Angeles. And we would, my buddies and I would go to those gigs and just, sure. ah, we were yeah, just yeah. in awe of those yeah. guys who had studied with him, and now they were doing the gig. And yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a real arrival. But my favorite was uh, Pete Chrisley was my was my sort of main saxophone hero yeah. in college and still to this day. Yeah, uh, one of my main ones because he's an LA guy, yeah. and has his own sound and his own approach and, and the whole thing. And so one of the one of the sort of real high points of my career was Charlie inviting me to come and play a gig in Cambria with him and Pete Chrisley, two tenors. Wow. And uh, man, that, I was I was just in heaven that day, and I've cool, been doing man. it long enough that I wasn't totally scared, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And Pete was like, "Yeah, kid, sounds good." <laughs> That's great, man. <laughs> you know, that was, That's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, a happy day. Yeah, I got a Pete Chris Levi album. I mean, this was vinyl. I must have been in my, you know, late teens, man. Uh huh. I think it was him and Warren Marsh. Am I right about that? I do. Yeah, you're record. talking about Apogee. That's that's yeah, an yeah. absolutely brilliant record. Man, I yep. haven't listened to that for years. I should get that out again, man. Oh man, you'll you'll find it you'll find yeah. it just as breathtaking or even more now if you haven't heard it for a while. Yeah, because heard it, for it years. was very forward looking, and yeah. and I know when I first heard that record, I wasn't ready for everything they were doing, yeah. and and now of course with Mark Turner sort of bringing Warren Warren back mm. into the into the conversation, it's even more relevant now because they're playing they're playing some of that Tristano music. And, and, mm. Oh man, what yeah. a great record! Yeah, Ooh. I'm gonna look that up. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah, look it up and watch, listen to it again. Yeah, it'll, not it'll to mention, sure. not to mention your your uh, great discography, which leads me to another another question for you. I mean, I um, I want to I, I ask everybody this: What are your favorite recordings of yourself playing that you like to recommend to people? Like, if I asked you, mm. tell me tell me three, two or three of your favorite records that you like that you would want people to hear. Huh. Oh, interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, <laughs> So the last two as a leader, uh, this the most recent one that was released in February of this year, 2023, is called The Inevitable Note. That's the band that, that right. you heard that just right. traveled to, to promote the, yeah, the release. The amazing band that I just heard, yeah. Uh, that, I think, is, I think that's the, the recording that I've done as a leader that's the most, um, that, that, uh, what should I say about that? It it feels like it's the most complete. I, mm-hmm. you know, many many artists will tell you that you know they play it on this record and and they like this tune, but they're not so happy about their performance on that tune or, mm-hmm. or something happened on that one. This is the first record I have where where I have no reservations at all. I'm like, yeah, listen to that whole record. I love everything on that record. That's beautiful <laughs> to hear, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Man. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm happy to say it. Yeah, I have that's never, beautiful. I've never had such an unequivocal feeling about a recording. Yeah. I feel like everybody just put their heart and soul into it, and and yeah. there's a lot of joy in that recording because it yeah. was our it was all of our first time back in the studio after the lockdown, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of happiness in it and, and passion and it's just it's just wonderful 
And the other thing about the new recording is that I wrote I wrote the music using the Ellingtonian idea of of imagining the people who were going to play the music and writing it for them. Yeah, I'm, and, I remember hearing you say that during the concert, and that's a uh -huh, beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Boy, what a thing! I've I've also never set out to create a recording from start to finish. I've always just kind of collected tunes that, that mm -hmm. I wanted to play. Oh, that's a great tune. I'm going to record that one. You know, when I had enough on a list, I would record them. And, mm -hmm. and this is the first one where I set out to write a bunch of original music and arrange a couple of standards and, mm -hmm. and, and do that with the whole record in mind. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like that I'm going to definitely do that again. I'll do the other thing again, too, where I just play yeah, a bunch yeah. of tunes, you know, blowing session. That's a nice way to do it also. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really feel like this, the, the connection to the musicians was really deep as a result of that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, anyway, so that's the new one is the one that I feel most, most happy about. Mm -hmm. The one before it is called Time Being mm -hmm. uh, with, with uh, Jeff Watts, Bob, uh, oh God! Can you believe that I, I blanked his Kikoski, name? Dave Kukoski, uh, Dave Kukoski, and and and, uh, Tain and I just looked at it. Who was the other person? I can't remember. Crap! The God, best I'm player. having a senior moment. I hate that so much. <laughs> I know, oh, me too. I God. hate it. Man. I think we're uh, at the same age. <laughs> yeah, I turned turn sixty, and it's just yeah. a horrible thing. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. Anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, I've done I some tours with Bob. I'd done some tours with Bob and, and I'd been playing with Tane kind of on and off over the years and had wanted to do something with them uh, for a while. And Kukoski and I had also done some gigs together and, and we're starting to get to know each other. And, and so the main thrust of that recording was meant to be trio, but I added Dave for three or four tunes. Mm -hmm. So it, it goes back and forth. And on that record, we, we did some experiments and, and these were, I was thinking about what it would feel like to play um in to to have musicians play swing by mm -hmm. themselves in different tempos so the question was if i had if i had bob playing robert hurst God, robert hurst there we go yeah yeah bob i started hurst, to I say that because i just looked at it a few minutes ago. i was having a senior <laughs> moment <laughs> myself bob yeah. if you ever hear this i apologize <laughs> Bob probably Bob probably understands completely. I imagine you. Know? Oh my God, it's such a <laughs> such a bummer that. Anyway, I'd done some tours with Bob, and we knew each other, and I knew how it felt to play with him. Uh -huh. And I, the question I asked myself was, what would it feel like if Bob was swinging, say, at, at this tempo, mm -hmm. and Tane was swinging himself at this tempo? Mm -hmm. And the tempos are not related. Mm -hmm. It's not a subdivision. You know, they're just two independent tempos. What would it feel like if I, as an improviser, could jump back and forth between the two of them? Oh, yeah. What would the music sound like? And what I, what I imagined doing was having, going into the studio and counting Bob off and having him play a certain number of choruses of something at a tempo and then, and then okay, thank you, and then having uh, Tane do that on a different track oh. at a different tempo. And then... Oh playing them up next to each other in my headphones and, and having me go bounce back uh -huh. and forth. That's what I imagined doing. But as it turned out at, at Tane's studio, the, the, whole, the whole point of the way he set up his studio is that you play together in the room. And it's mm -hmm. about creating, creating the atmosphere of a live performance and that type of communication and capturing that on, on a recording. So we couldn't go in different booths or do it. I guess we, I guess we could, I guess I could have figured out how to do it with the technology, but more importantly than that, what it presented me with was, what if I asked these guys to just do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so we were sitting at the dinner table and I said, you know, I got some tunes to play guys and we had sort of two days to, to rehearse and rehearse and record. Mm -hmm. So we tended to sort of rehearse a tune for a little while and then record it and then move on to the next. Mm -hmm. I said, I said, how do you guys feel about, I've got like four of these experiments where we're going to be doing or where we're going to have some different ways of setting people up to play in, in different tempos and then either just stay like that or find a new tempo together. So I, I experimented with about four different iterations of that idea. And now we're like, let's try it. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah, didn't yeah. have to think about it. It was so cool. Right. <laughs> and so we did. And, and I, I just think that it's one of those records where if you know what we're doing, it helps 
it helps mm. to to help your ears sort of follow what's going on. There's one tune, the, the <clears throat> title track, where where we start in one tempo and then individually we move away from the original tempo and arrive at a new one towards the end of the track. Mm-hmm. But we don't go there all together at the same time. We go there one at a time. So mm-hmm. we're playing we're playing together for a while and then each of us is is playing by himself but against the others in different tempos and then eventually we wind up together. It's a really it's a really interesting phenomenon yeah. and it worked it really worked but if you don't know that that's happening and you and you hear that music you might think wow what, what the heck are these guys doing you know? no it makes but, me think of it makes me think of something that or ornette might have done you know i mean it sort of seems like in a way yeah I mean, yeah and but, the but, but the way you're talking about it is it's more it sounds more difficult <laughs> that that tricky. is where it came from the yeah. idea came from lonely woman yeah, so right. in in Lonely Woman, the horns are playing, the the horns are playing, in their own tempo space, mm-hmm. and and Billy Higgins and and Charlie Hayden are are playing in time, but not with the horns. They're playing in time with each other, right? But not with the horns. Right. So they're separate, and and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if this is actually the the whole the 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 um, the, the seed of this entire recording happened when I was thinking about this idea. What if I told Tane, and I was imagining Tane, what if I told Tane to just play like he was in the practice room and had found something that he really loved and he was just feeling super inspired? You know, could you do that, Tane? <laughs> and do that. And then, and then me and Bob are going to be over here to the side and we're going to be playing with the melody of Lonely Woman. And like I'll I'll play a little bit of it and then and then he he can play a little of that and then and then a little while later he'll play a little chunk of the melody and I'll copy his way of playing it kind of like we're teaching it to each other. Meanwhile, Tane mm-hmm. is just swinging like crazy over here by right, himself. Right. And then and then eventually we we're so drawn to what Tane is doing. It's so compelling that right. we have to just drop what we're doing and go play with him. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that, that was that was the first idea. I had about trying playing in different tempos and and playing with the tension that happens when people are doing two different things and and oh what would it feel like if we if we now go and put them together. Yeah. So I did some more traditional things on that record and then there's these four experiments I call them sculptures. Yeah. And I think that I think that record is is really successful as a as an experimentation record. So it's yeah, it's yeah. not one you it's not one you put on for your for your lover over a candlelight dinner <laughs> <laughs> unless you have bad news for them <laughs> yeah. you trying to start a fight <laughs> oh boy. but i think it's good music and and i yeah. like the way that one came out and then the other one that i that i often recommend is the wishing well which is one of my first ones with yeah. with a band that i had together for a long time with with Billy Hart and Ray Drummond and Bruce Barth, I remember to say all their names correctly. Yeah, yeah, uh, and we had a band together for about six years, did a bunch of tours in Japan and a couple in the States and a couple in Europe. Mm-hmm. And that was the first record I recorded with that band. And the, the title track of that is a, is, is a ballad called The Wishing Well. Uh, and, and I counted it off at one tempo and Billy said, musically, you know, with the music, he said, I'm actually feeling this over here <laughs> and he he took us into a shirley horn style very slow ballad and it 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 lasted i think i think the whole thing is about 13 minutes wow. and you know you don't do that you don't make a 13 right. minute ballad on a record right. certainly right. you don't sure. do that in 1999 you know sure and, but it was so beautiful that i left it i didn't i didn't edit it didn't take anything out I just left it as we performed it mm-hmm. and billy talked about that for a long time as one of his one of his ballad performances on record that he was really happy with cool. so really, those are the three that i that i would recommend the most but i i can i can mostly say that i like the records i played on yeah, some of them to... actually i was just talking about this with one of my students yesterday there what we were talking about was the the thing in the studio between choosing between coming prepared with some stuff that you want to play versus really leaving it open and mm-hmm. and seeing what happens Mm-hmm. And the second 
approach is much more risky because mm-hmm. if you play something, if you're going for, if you're going for open-ended feeling and, and you really are not going to decide what you're going to play in advance, you might not make, you know, that's a risk. You might not right, play something sure. good. <laughs> it might absolutely. not sound good. And now you have to live with that for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's and, Charlie Rouse saying that on that monk record, you know, that monk video. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I have largely under Billy Hart's influence, I have devoted myself to that second way of, of really, yeah. really leaving it open and not, not trying to play stuff that I've pre-prepared. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, I was telling my student, as a result, there are some things out there where I'm like, yeah, that was my best playing that day. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's the first thing that somebody hears from me, mm-hmm. ah, that'd be kind of too bad, you know, but oh, well, you got to yeah. take the, you yeah. got to take the risks with the rewards, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember playing a gig, a duo gig with this bass player friend of mine. And she said, <clears throat> you know, I was, I was experimenting with something, you know, like trying to play a little more freely. We're just playing tunes, but I was trying to play a little. Mm-hmm. And she goes, she said, when you start doing that, I don't know what to do. And I said, don't try to play something that don't stop trying to play something that's good. You know? Yeah. Right. Don't try to play right. good, you know, just play, you know? Yep. Yeah, let's yeah. see what happens. Just let's see what we can talk about yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And another that reminds me of another really interesting moment I had with David Berkman. We were we were on a tour in the states. We were in one of those. It was one of those classroom environments where we were playing for some students. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked him a question, and he said, "You know what's really interesting about playing together with the same guys and basically the same music every night? You know, we." Would, we would generally do a new repertoire of tunes for every tour that we did, but but then we'd have that repertoire of tunes and we'd play that for the tour. Mm-hmm. And David was like, the thing that's really interesting about it is that now I really know how Tim plays. Yeah, and if, right, if, right. if Tim, I know his regular stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's really interesting for me now, speaking as David, is when Tim plays something I've never heard him play before, my antenna go up and I'm like, oh, he's found something. Mm-hmm. And that makes me, the piano player, have to find a new way to accompany what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And so that I just thought that was a really interesting thing that he said about how getting to know each other is is a is a really beautiful thing if the attitude is that we're still searching and trying to find new things. Right. Because we know each other so well, when somebody finds something new, you're like, oh, never heard him do that before. And and everybody's, yeah, yeah. you know, everybody, there's a spark that happens. That, right, right. And it was really nice for me to hear him say that out loud to a bunch of students. We had never had that discussion. Mm-hmm. It was prompted by a question from a student. Mm-hmm. And so that, that made me more committed to, you know, hearing that out loud made me more committed to trying to really search when I play it mm-hmm. and see if I can find something I haven't said before. Yeah, that's very insightful. That's a very insightful comment, you know. Well, so Burton, that brings me that, that brings brings up a question actually. Um you recorded this l- latest album before you went on the tour. So yeah. then you go on a tour and you play this music for however long you play it, you know, every night with each, you know, with the same band. So yep. have you considered recording it after the tour, the same music again after I would like to hear the before and after, you know, and hear how it developed, you know. Yeah, it's very it's very interesting that you asked that question. On on the on the road after six or eight days, Kenny Davis one night said, "Man, can you imagine if we'd recorded this music now? Yeah, because exactly. we had found so many things. We were exploring sure, sure, the music sure. every night." Sure. And my response to it was, uh, "You know, it's an interesting thing because you sometimes if there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Sometimes when you go in the studio." and you're playing it for the first time, that thing of everybody's antenna being up right, sure. is happening because you have to feel your way through the music. Mm-hmm. It's not familiar. And mm-hmm. that antenna being up, feeling your way through the music, that is very uh, fresh and magical. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so if you can capture that magic in that first performance, then you have something really good regardless. Mm-hmm. And the flip side of it is if you're out on the studio, I mean, out on the road and you playing it and you you're having this live magic night after night and you go into the studio sometimes the attitude is we have to capture that live right magic. right 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 and you can't <laughs> you right, can't sure, do it exactly it's sure, not sure, you sure. can't do it it's not the yeah, same yeah. if you can if you get it just right 
and you can go into the studio and play with the magic of that day, which is based on some good experiences in the past. You know, you, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a good, there's a good happy medium in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's interesting that you asked because we did discuss that very thing. Yeah, yeah, and in this era would, yeah. of, well, so here we are in the era of YouTube and, and Zoom. Mm -hmm. right. And, and so what I did do was take my little, my little, uh, uh, video camera with me yeah, every night that was my, that and was I my recorded, next question <laughs> yeah i recorded everything and i yeah. i have a, in fact the guy uh, matthew heister who helped me uh, lay out the book he was like my he was like my um my partner in the sense that i would write a chapter and then i would send it to matthew and he would read through it. he's a guitarist so he would mm -hmm. read through it and ask me musical questions help me clarify things mm -hmm. and then also look at the english and help clarify the english mm -hmm. and then he was the designer of the book he laid it out Mm -hmm. He's a multi-talented dude who also helped me do the videos that mm -hmm. go with the book. Okay. And so I reached out to him the yeah. other day. I said, hey, I got all this video footage. Would yeah. you like to make a series of videos with me? Yeah. And he said, of course, would love to. And, and so yeah. we will dole out some performances from the road uh, cool. over time. I haven't yeah. figured out exactly how to do that. But, yeah. but since you asked, it sparked the idea that one interesting thing might be to, to, to play uh, say four versions of the mayor's council, one of my original tunes, mm -hmm. do four versions in chronological, chronological order from the yeah, tour. Yeah, yeah. So you can see how it changes from night to night that yeah. that might be, or not, yeah, you know, depending yeah. on, depending Sign on how up. creative we were. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's some well, different ways we can, we yeah. can do that. That's yeah. I want to see that. In fact, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, man, I want, I want a video of that concert you did at the school. I mean that might be. We'll talk about it off 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 the thing, uh, but can, I sure would love to see it. We can make it. that happen. Um, make and that, that one thing in particular, <laughs> just because I love Jim's playing so much, when he played that intro on Infinite, I was just like, "Wow! Like, where did that come from?" You know. I mean, I can't wait to right? interview him and have this conversation with him actually too. You know. I mean, uh -huh. I was just and so many things happened. I mean, just the way you guys play together. I mean, the the cues. I mean, the subtle cues, and I mean just. We don't get to see that here that often where I live, you know, on that level. So, uh -huh. Uh -huh. so it was nice. just, it was beautiful to see that. And of course, everybody's, I mean, you guys all play so well together and everybody's world class. And I mean, just seeing everybody play together as a, as, and communicate with each other. And uh, uh -huh. just, yeah, I'm, I'm just blown away, man. Still thinking about it. Yeah. So I'd love to it see that if you, if you wanted to share it with me at some point. You know? We can, we can certainly do that. And, and uh, that reminded me of the, that, thing I, I touched on earlier of that was a really good example of asking um, Jim to play an introduction to Infinite. Mm -hmm. So rather than counting it in, mm -hmm. which doesn't communicate anything about sure. how I feel in that sure, moment sure, or, sure, or right. what I would like to accomplish with that song, you know, mm -hmm. instead I said, hey, Jim, would you like to play a little bit out front of Infinite? And then our performance of the song was was a response to the vibe he set up at the top so the whole thing flowed from the beauty of what he yeah. what he found right and and i try to do that it's it, it's pretty easy with ballads mm -hmm. uh and i was definitely counting off tunes more than i wanted to on this tour uh just because i hadn't hadn't found a way mm -hmm. to get somebody to do it himself you know but mm -hmm. we did have kenny kenny would start uh, the tune called yamakas we would have him do that yeah i remember that yeah Right. And then sometimes, sometimes Jim would play something out front of a ballad. Sometimes I would, mm -hmm. and and I try to compose ways of getting the music started that that don't require me to say one, two, one, two, three, four. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. May he rest in peace, Wayne Shorter. Sorry we lost him. This yeah, year. yeah. We just had Herbie. Herbie played here earlier this summer. And oh, is that right? It was during the week that we had a jazz camp at school. And so somebody uh -huh. donated money for all the students to go hear Herbie Hancock, students oh, and awesome. faculty. So, and I took my mm. oldest son, Taji, that you asked me about. I took my oldest son uh -huh. with me. And and yeah. we'd both been together to hear Herbie the last time he was here, like 10 years ago or something like that. And, uh, yeah. and you know what's interesting? I stood up after the concert. I stood up. We were getting ready to leave. And I thought, man, that might be the best thing I've ever seen. And then I thought of except when I saw Sam Rivers when I was like 19 or 20, you know, uh -huh. that blew my mind completely, you know, 
And the next day yeah. I asked my buddy who had been at the concert, I said, man, what, what did you think of that? He said, man, all I could think about was that was the best thing I've seen since Sam Rivers. <laughs> really? Wow. <that's laughs> yeah. My, my, man, my buddy uh, said the same thing, you know? Oh, amazing. So, <laughs> but Herbie, same thing with Herbie. With, I mean, he just sounded better than ever, which is amazing. He's 83. He sounded better than the last time I heard him, you know? It was amazing. Just want to be like that. That's how I, I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Exactly. I want to play until that point in my life. I, I'd like to live that long and I'd mm -hmm. like to still be creative with that. Mm -hmm. like that at that exactly. stage. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Herbie blew my mind. He's he's blown it on any number of occasions, but yeah. but I think if I have to choose the uh, so I I'll say three. The first one was hearing Benny Goodman. The mm -hmm. second one was a um uh, a herbie septet performance at the blue note and and i remember i was at the vanguard and i ran into billy hart in the street he was on his way from the blue note to the vanguard i was on my way from the vanguard to the blue note we ran into each other on the street and and i said to him yeah it's pretty happening over at the vanguard you're gonna enjoy it yeah. and he looked what he had a kind of a special look in his eyes and he said oh man what they're doing at the blue note is, is gonna mess you up mm -hmm. and i went in there and they played they played one finger snap and it was uh, Ira Coleman and um, uh, yeah, uh, another, another name on blank, but I'll get uh, Terry Lynn Carrington was playing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the rhythm section, <laughs> the rhythm section played must have been eight or 10 choruses where you couldn't tell where one was. The music was completely floating right. all over the bar lines. Right. And, and I couldn't, it was apparent that they were traveling through the song together, but mm -hmm. it was not apparent if, if the pulse was steady underneath it or not. You yeah, couldn't yeah, tell. Right, exactly. And they floated and floated and floated. And then I don't know what the cue was, but when they went to play in time together, I screamed. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. It was the most dramatic thing I had ever heard and it completely blew my mind wide open. Yeah. Yeah, I had never heard I had never heard something so powerful done before. Yeah. And that was the other one. And the and the third for me, unforgettable moment was uh Sonny. I, I'd seen him a handful of times, Sonny Rollins. Mm -hmm. He played at the at the uh, beacon at the what's the ballroom on the upper west side called? Beacon Theater, yeah. Right. He was at the Beacon Theater and uh big stage and, and he he did a whole lot of stuff with a lot, whole lot of different people. Jim Hall was there and, and, and a whole bunch of things. And then for the second half, he just had Roy Haynes and Christian Beside came out and played trio. And they started with Sunny Moon for two. And he played a beautiful, played a beautiful blues solo, classic Sunny Rollins, just exploring humor, the whole, everything you expect from Sunny. Sounded fantastic. And then uh, Ornette Coleman stepped out from the wing. Oh, no. And walked on stage and played a solo over, you know, with the same song and the same rhythm section that Sonny just been played on, wow. which was incredible. And then Sonny, inspired by that, came back and played another solo. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. and that solo that Sonny played after Ornette was one of the baddest things I've ever heard in my life. Wow. I can imagine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Those are, those are my three. Those are my three sort of key moments. Yeah, beautiful, man. <laughs> I got to hear Sonny once when I was in, in my early 20s. They had a series, three night concerts. One was Sonny, one was Sun Ra Orchestra, and mm -hmm. one was uh, George Adams Quintet with Don Pullen. Oh, and yeah. And I was Cameron there all Brown three nights it. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God almighty, man. Sonny came out on stage and just played solo for 15 minutes before the band even came out. And it was just, I was just in awe. I was just like, wow, I never heard yep. anything that powerful in my life, you know? And then Sun Ra's okay. band, they came out one at a time from the wings playing free until the whole band uh -huh. was sitting there all playing free. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> out of nowhere, it's like, boom, they're playing like this 1930s swing swing band song. You know, I mean, just like yeah. I couldn't even see the cue. It was just like it was just yep. like all of a sudden, like, boom, here we go. You know, and uh, then they, they were walking through the eye the whole bit, you know, the Sun Ra, the whole bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. I was fortunate. I got to play with one of Sunrise drummers in a quintet for a, a couple of years, and uh, his name uh -huh. was Samurai Celestial, and we made a couple of uh -huh. CDs together. Yeah, and uh, space is the place. Yeah, space is the place, man. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, well, man, yeah. this has been just great. I I could sit here and talk to you all day, and I'd like to do that. But uh, it, um, is there anything else you'd like to bring up? I I don't know that I have anything specific.
to ask you more, but although I want to talk no. to you more about music, anything yeah, you want to say to the nice. students, anything you want to say to the to the kids? I'm a teacher. I know you're a teacher. Yeah. Anything you want to uh, say to the a, young students? Been a really fun, freewheeling conversation. I've, I've yeah, really enjoyed good. just just yeah, kind of yeah. seeing where it goes in the same yeah, way absolutely. we play music, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, the you know the main thing to say to the kids is is the 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 miracle of swing is out there. That's, that's, that's <laughs> a know? beautiful thing to say, man. <laughs> it, that's a beautiful it, way to say it, you know. If you if you get a chance to play with somebody who's devoted his life to swinging, try to jump up on there with them and see if you can feel what that feels like. That's that's yeah. the thing because a, a lot of the students now, like the generation of musicians that I you know I came to New York to play with people like Tom Harrell and and Billy Hart and, and Kenny Barron, you know, that was the reason I came here was to get on the stand and feel what the music feels like in their hands. And, you know, there aren't that many of, of the guys of that level of experience left anymore. So, sure, exactly. so yeah, I would say if you can, if you can get a chance and now there's, there's another generation coming up. Rudy Royston Rudy's uh, amazing, man. is a great example of a drummer who can, he can do all of the contemporary things, but he can also just sit back and let the music tip. You know, that that feeling of, of the, that beautiful tip where you don't have to do anything to the music. You can just let it be beautiful. Right, exactly <laughs> you know? right, exactly. that, that kind of aesthetic yeah. is is a very, very special thing that we that our culture has given to the world. And uh, yeah, I, that's what I would say to, to kids is you, if you hear somebody who's swinging in that traditional way and you get a chance to get up and feel it, absolutely don't miss that opportunity. That's, that's something that's, that's one, of those, one of those feelings in life that once you've had it once, you're going to have to have to try to get it again. Yeah, beautiful. Well, once again, it's been my pleasure to have as my guest today, Mr. Tim Armacost. I recommend you go to his website and uh, check out some of his recordings and his book and just, just check it out. He's a great musician. It's been a real pleasure having you here today and talking about this. And I look forward to yeah. many more conversations, I hope, like this. So, Likewise, Keith. Thanks so. for initiating it and getting us started. And let's keep this conversation going. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for checking out Notes on Jazz. If you want to communicate with me, I offer free consultations. Just check the podcast notes for a link. You can also find a link to my website for CDs, downloads, and videos. See you next time at Notes on Jazz.